welcome to the Awake Asia podcast. This podcast is about crossing cultures and borders to share stories about everyday people doing extraordinary things. Each episode, we share knowledge, inspiration, and stories of triumph to help you live a fitter, healthier, more purpose-driven, conscious lifestyle. My name is Luke, and along with my wife, Emily, and our little girl, Sienna, we are the creators of Awake Method. In today's episode, Emily and I are joined with Michael Broadhead. Michael is a science teacher and volunteer director of EarthFest, Earth Film Fest, and Animal Allies in Singapore. Growing up on a grain farm, he was often exposed to farm animals when visiting neighbors and extended family. During a backpacking holiday in India, he realized that the farming and diet he had been normalized to had devastating environmental and health impacts with moral implications he had never considered before. He now works to close awareness gaps and inspire people to live a more sustainable, healthy, and compassionate lifestyle. In today's interview, Emily and I talk about the impact of mass consumption and how to live a more ecological and sustainable lifestyle. We also chat about LGBTQ rights and how society is progressing on all fronts. I still remember the very first time I met Michael at a local cafe as I was devouring my tofu burger. And to see how he has helped connect the local veg and eco community here, fronting numerous outreach programs, I'm optimistic about shifts to greener living in the sunny island of Singapore. Now to the conversation. Canada about 11 years ago. So how, how long was it for you? Uh, I left Canada in 2006 the first time, but uh, then I came back temporarily and then I left again in 2009. Yeah, time flies. <laughs> and you weren't, you've been in Asia the whole time? So yeah, since 2009, uh, I was in Taiwan, uh, China working, um, um, and then Singapore working, and then I just kind of traveled around uh, the, the other countries during a, a gap year. You've always been working as a teacher? Yes, uh, pretty well. Uh, I did, you know, always work with children. One of my other jobs in Canada was uh, running a childcare center for a while. So initially, what got you to just all of a sudden just deciding that, hey, um, I'm going to see Asia. I'm just going to pack my bag and leave indefinitely. Yeah, I think um, for me, it was uh, essentially I kind of wanted to always explore the world. Uh, it wasn't something that I grew up with. Uh, my family weren't travelers. Uh, I didn't leave Canada until after I graduated university. I'd never left it at all. And so I just uh, watching, you know, a lot of documentaries as a child, uh, seeing the world, uh, I always kind of felt like I wanted to go there. And so the first time I left Canada was to go to the UK. And so when I did that, I kind of got a really uh, good taste of what it is to explore the rest of the world. And uh, so when I got back to Canada, I sort of, you know, uh, you know, started working at the childcare center and I sort of built it up uh, to where I wanted it to be, where I felt like, well, there's not much more I can contribute to it and feeling like, you know what, it's time to get back out there. And so I decided that, yeah, I should try maybe take a year just to travel around. And uh, so the goal wasn't initially to work in Asia, it was just to travel in Asia. And I, but it kind of worked out that I wanted to travel with somebody else. 
and then it didn't work out that I could get somebody else that was able to take a gap year. So I said, okay, well, instead of just backpacking, I'll, I'll go work there uh, instead. Uh, it just felt a little safer choice for me uh, at that stage um, because I still wasn't that experienced of a traveler. All I'd really gone to was, you know, the UK. I had done a little bit uh, on holiday in, in Mexico and Guatemala, but like I just really wasn't an experienced traveler. So I felt, okay, I'll just work. And uh, yeah, so I, I worked there for a year and then, uh, you know, did a couple small holidays uh, to Cambodia during that first year and, and uh, kind of felt, oh, you know what, I, I think I, you know, can do this. So after that first year, I took a year off uh, to travel around. And that was when I kind of uh, discovered Singapore and uh, all these other amazing places uh, uh, that I eventually ended up in as well. So your passion and interest uh, for sustainability and everything veganism was it, it? Did it happen while you were traveling in Asia, or was it already in? No, it's. Uh, I mean, it was. It was in me, sort of in the sense that you know. I would always say that I cared about the environment or I cared about animals or whatever. But like, if you looked, if I looked at myself back then, like all my behaviors and habits, like I was, I would buy junk all the time and throw things away. And, you know, it was very materialistic and uh, eat a lot of meat and all these kinds of things. So it's, uh, so yeah, it was, it, it was just traveling that allowed me to, you know, get out of this culture that I grew up in, which was a farming culture, you know, it's growing up in rural Alberta and uh, there animals are, you know, uh, there's farm animals and they're treated differently than the dogs and the cats and you eat meat every meal uh, pretty well and, uh, you know, it's just kind of how things are and you just never question it while you're growing up in that. And so it wasn't until I traveled to India and, and southern India, particularly where it's very, you know, vegetarian uh, centric culture historically and uh, going to a reforestry project uh, that was run by um, a vegan. And that's where I started to realize that, you know, eating meat was a choice, not a necessity. And whenever there's a choice, then there's morality that comes into play. And uh, through that experience of, I was only there about two weeks volunteering, but discovering that, you know, if you want to do reforestry work while you're eating meat, it doesn't make any sense because the number one cause of deforestation is eating meat. So what are you doing? And uh, learning all the connections to climate change and water pollution and all those kinds of things. But also, you know, just realizing that, um, yeah, and it kind of happened specifically through a documentary that we watched while we were there, which is The Cove. Mm -hmm. And I think The Cove is a very good one. It just really, most people would never really, especially in Western cultures, consider eating a dolphin. Of course. They, they really, you know, know dolphins mostly for like shows and stuff like that. So they do have some compassion for them. They don't view them as food. Uh, but they're also different from a pet because, you you know, you never have one. So it's kind of an interesting one. And so when you watch that and you see dolphins being slaughtered and, and you see, you know, them trying to protect their young and all those kinds of things, you know, you feel that compassion. It opens your heart up. And so it, it led into the, this conversation after, you know, is, you know, objectively, what's the difference between a cow and a dolphin in that case? You know, they they both want to live. They both feel pain, all these kinds of things. And you know, when you grow up in, in a farming culture, you never are allowed to look at a cow in that way. And you're never questioned to look at a cow in that way. So it wasn't until that documentary and that talk where I, you know, was confronted with, wow, yeah, the, this whole idea of speciesism and carnism and realizing that I had sort of been indoctrinated into all of these sort of, you know, 
conceptions about life, uh, which are misconceptions uh, in my view now. And uh, so, yeah, when I when I, I was I'm a very logical person. Uh, I'm a science teacher, and so I always try to be able to explain things logically. And I just started realizing that there's no way I could explain why I was eating one animal and not another. And I especially couldn't justify it after meeting all these long-term vegans that were healthy and doing all this physical work, uh, doing reforestry work. And uh, I was just like, wow, um, uh, there's no good reasons to, to keep eating meat. And uh, really, if I think about my values, I was like, the, the opposite is true. I should you know, be helping animals, not eating them. So, And then it just kind of made sense. And in terms of your, you making the switch, was it an overnight thing or was it kind of more a gradual thing across the months and then the years? Yeah, for me, it's as soon as that sort of happened. And it, I mean, the, the, as soon as I heard the environmental arguments, you know, I was like reducitarian, vegetarian, that's okay. Um, but it's when, you know, the cove and when the animal argument came in and it was this fundamental shift that animals are not food. And, you know, for me, just because I'm the type of person that I, it has to be logical to me. And as soon as it wasn't logical for me, like I just couldn't view it as food anymore. And so for me, I'm kind of the exception where I could flip a switch and, you know, I, I, I made the change right away. But I think for other people, it's uh, a slower transition is sometimes more appropriate. Definitely. I mean, especially in recent times, we've witnessed and listened to and watched these so-called influencers dropping like flies and saying, oh, it's, <laughs> it's this vegan thing and it's this whole nutritional thing and I, I need to listen to my whole intuition. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, ultimately when you're, you're looking at influencers, they're, they're there for a different purpose. They're there for themselves and uh, oftentimes uh, they're there just to get the viewers and they're not, uh, you know, ultimately, if, if you want to talk about veganism, it's, it's about animal rights and those kinds of things uh, at its core, whereas uh, most of these influencers are more looking at it from maybe the health perspective or, you know, they just uh, they're just trying to do something that um, is trendy, that people are searching and, you know, get the views. And as a result, they don't plan it appropriately and they don't, you know, I mean, they're, 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 they're not looking at it from a holistic perspective and they're not doing research and, and all, they're just doing whatever just to, to get the views. And, uh, and, and, you know, like some of them just doing really, really sad things, you know, like really restrictive diets and, you know, just like all, all these really pseudoscientific, natural, you know, alternative things that just really you know when you look at it uh, objectively as as somebody else you, you're just like well of course you're sick <laughs> you know of course you're sick yeah. like but you know to them they just can't see it and then they and they blame the wrong thing and it, it's really unfortunate because obviously the people that that watch um, their downfall you know get a misrepresentation of what the problem was and uh, then the rest of us have to try and again uh, fix that that's uh, that problem that they've created yeah no i find it pretty insulting because i have experienced like not not setbacks but you know like i was raw for two years realized that was not suiting that that did not suit me and i just found a solution to it through my veganism you know yeah. what i mean like to me it was never like oh you know i need to eat meat and is there did you go through that kind of these kind of setbacks since you've been a vegan or has been like super smooth sailing it's been pretty smooth for me. Um, yeah, it's like, I, I mean, 
I think the the misconception that people have is that if you go vegan, all your health problems go away, and you're you're just going to be this uh, you know <laughs> this paragon of health for the rest of your life, and you're going to live forever, and all these kinds of things. Um, so it's like um, I definitely um, overall got a bit healthier, I would say, uh, on average. But just like uh, anything, there's uh, like I had a time where my eczema came back. Mm. But the first year after I went vegan was the first time I had clear skin my whole life. But then it came back a few years later. And so it's like all these sort of ebbs and flows of normal health that come into play. Uh, and also I got, you know, more active uh, as well uh, when I turned vegan. So that also contributed positively. And so I think that, you know, it's just ultimately you can live a healthy life, uh, you know, as a vegan and just, just do it properly and plan it. Yeah, I still think back about the very first time we met and I remember the lights and we were at Balanced Living. Yeah. I think, goodness, that was, it feel, feels like a lifetime ago when we were talking about this whole idea of animal allies and all of these amazing things that you're doing right now and definitely want to get into that. Like, so you, when, when we were back then, you, you shared that you were going through some setbacks throughout your vegan journey. Was it the eczema that you just mentioned? Uh, yeah, that would have been one of them. Uh, so yeah, but I mean, I don't necessarily attribute that to diets, uh, entirely. Like, uh, if I had been eating meat, that probably would have happened as well is, is my guess. And then it's, uh, gone away as well while I was still eating the vegan diet. So it's, um, you know, just one of those things that, uh, yeah, it's, you just have to realize that you, you always, uh, like, cause I grew up, uh, from young having allergies and asthma and all those kinds of things. Um, you know, so you just have to have a realistic sort of, um, perspective of things. And I mean, there definitely are some amazing transformation stories out there. And, and those tend to come from people that were just really unhealthy before they, they started mostly through lifestyle choices. And as soon as you change your lifestyle, then of course, you can get a completely wonderful transformation and where your life feels a lot better. But if you were generally healthy before, you're not going to feel like some magic, uh, you know, has taken over you. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, it's, we got to be realistic about these things, right? Yeah, same thing, Luke, uh, you did not cure your asthma. Yeah, I thought, you know, initially, I mean, definitely I would say in terms of my asthma is heaps better. Um, but I thought that it would go away, but you know, I've been having asthma for as long as I knew I grew up with epilepsy and nephrotic syndrome. And fortunately I grew out of that, but moving towards a, a vegan diet, um, I did definitely my eczema went away, but I thought my asthma would go away, but it hasn't, but it's just manageable. It's just one of those things. Obviously there's, there's, you know, many different types of health issues out there. And even if we take a look at cancer, you know, there's, um, hundreds of different, uh, you know, causes of cancers and things like that. And there's some people whose cancer is caused by lifestyle and, you know, a complementary, um, you know, sort of approach of changing their diet can help. But another person goes and, and you know, they, they may take the unfortunate sort of decision to avoid um, conventional Western, you know, medicine go purely diet and then it doesn't do anything and that's because their their cancer is probably more genetic you know mm -hmm. and uh you know so it's always we we got to be a little bit careful about you know what kind of things we say um in terms of health uh especially you know if we don't have the credentials to back those things up and, and definitely when we get back to influencers you know they're oftentimes making all these really ridiculous statements completely based on their own experience you know just empirical yes. you know um, stories, you know, and I mean, when we talk about health, you know, it's got to be more backed up in terms of research and things like that uh, before we try to to make really good uh, advice or give good advice to people. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm all about the scope of practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going back to our conversation back in balanced living, I can't even remember how many how many years ago, but um, four. you four, four years, and half, four, four and a half probably, and we were chatting about this whole idea of you creating a community and fast forward to where we are right now you've created a community you're working full-time you're you've got animal allies you've run earth fest now you're part of arf crf yeah there's just so much going on in your life um how have you seen this whole movement and the community grow with um, what you've really started well i think uh first uh, a lot of people like to say i started things not i don't think that's how it is at all i think it, the whole point was you know you were part of the conversation Many other people that I had met at the potlucks and other ways, um, you know, got to know, uh, we all got to know each other. And it was all us sort of saying, you know, collectively that, yes, we want to do something because, okay, all I really did was say, here's the time, here's the place, okay? If nobody showed up, nothing would have happened. So, like, you know, I I, I don't like to be given that kind of grade. It's really a community effort uh, that, that created this. And uh, so, so, you know, since then, it, it's just been about, uh, you know, me trying to figure out how to, to stimulate this ecosystem in Singapore and how to get people the support they need and networking and all those kinds of things in place uh, so that it can, uh, you know, continue to grow. And, and so, you know, part of that has been capacity building. That's been my focus a lot more recently, which is, you know, getting people with skills and time into the organization uh, and making sure that they're committed and all those kinds of things so that we can create things like the Alliance for Responsible Future, which, uh, you know, is filling a, a gap of uh, in terms of the sort of corporate world, business world, uh, and, and trying to promote the plant-based, uh, you know, and, and even cellular agriculture side of things, uh, you know, here. Um, but, uh, and EarthFest as well. But, uh, you know, the, as part of this capacity building as well, is realizing that I'm one person. And uh, especially because I was, you know, helping, had my, had my sort of fingers in so many different pies, mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, it, it was ultimately going to lead to burnout. And so it's very important as, as activists that we, we really recognize when we're on the, on the track to burning out so that we can take steps to correct that because we really um, have this really poor track record in the movement of you know, people, you know, they, they burn brightly and then they're gone and somebody else has to come in and they burn brightly and then they're gone. And with, without you know, people staying in this for, for their life, you know, it's very hard to get the movement um, moving as effectively as it should be, you need people that you know have history with it and are able to um, you know pass on knowledge, are able to mentor, and all these kinds of things. And uh, so you know, part of this was you know, okay, now I'm feeling it's really too much for me to do a full time job and all these kinds of things in the background. So um, started to expand the board. So this year we we have a, a, a huge uh, huge new board and many new great people and uh, hiring uh, some new directors. So there's going to be a new director for EarthFest uh, and, and uh, for charity and uh, all those kinds of things. So I'm um, now in the phase uh, this year of, of being able to handle off more responsibilities that I've, now that I've created some things, which is, you know, helping to, you know, transfer those responsibilities to somebody else that can keep them going longer term and ultimately be able to do them better. Because what I was getting to the point is, which is, you know, your, your days are so full that you can't really make the things better anymore you're kind of just keeping them going 
but ultimately you want to be able to innovate you want to be able to do better so that, that's where you know it comes into this capacity building and so now i want my focus to be a little bit more uh, potentially right now is on my day job because now I, I work as a sustainability director at my school. So I, I have the ability to be able to influence a lot of change there now in that role and uh, to be able to focus on, you know, one thing uh, in the charity, which is the volunteers. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do a better job of all those kinds of things now that uh, we're starting to get more things delegated and spread out. So with this current role that you're in right now, was this role created for you? Was it uh, existing before? What were you doing prior to this role that brought you to this? So I've been at the at the same school here since I moved to Singapore. And, uh, uh, Canadian International? Yeah, Canadian International. And we, uh, you know, we've always, when we started, there's really nothing in terms of uh, sustainability there. Uh, and so we saw a teacher, another teacher and I, um, we're working on getting a student club growing. Uh, so then we started doing that and it started to catch uh, fire in a way. The kids started to get interested, started growing all those kinds of things. And then I started trying to influence uh, other things, just even though I had no authority to do it. Uh, I just felt, you know what, these are things that could be improved, uh, you know, environmentally. So I, I just started, you know, uh, sticking my neck out there and creating conversations and things and trying to help change a few things. And so that, uh, you know, kind of went on and kind of, you know, grew. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, I started making several proposals to the school about, you know, how can we, you know, take this more seriously and, and what would we need to do? And so part of that was, you know, it would be good if you would create a role um, because the, the problem was in the school, of course, I was, you know, just on my own trying to influence things. But the problem was if I, you know, left the school, then, you know, everything would just fall apart because it was dependent on somebody who was just volunteering. So there's no continuity. So part of my, you know, strategy was, okay, it's, it's also about changing institutions. So that's where these proposals came in. So it took, uh, I think I did about uh, three years of proposals and at the end of the third year is when they they said, okay, we're going to give you part time, um, you know, off your schedule to be a sustainability lead, and that's now an official position in our school. So if you leave, then you know we'll find a replacement, and they will carry on those responsibilities, and so things you know will will continue on afterwards. And yeah, so that's uh, how that sort of came about. Uh, it was uh, ultimately that things don't change unless you try to drive it. So part of, uh, I mean, this is part of this, like, you know, effective altruism, 80,000 hours movement, which is use your careers to drive change because you spend so much time at work every week. Mm -hmm. You should be spending, you know, as much of your time at work driving change as you can. Uh, and then, you know, it can have a, a much bigger effect long term than just focusing on your after work or weekend volunteering only. So, I mean, it obviously looks like, you know, with Canadian International School, they are really supportive of your work. For someone out there who possibly is starting on this journey of the sustainability course, uh, wanting to create an impact, how can they possibly start um, if they're stuck in just a nine to five job? How can they start moving towards this direction? Yeah, I think that, I mean, depending on whatever um, cause that you're interested in, because 80,000 hours, this whole idea is, uh, it, it can be related to any cause, but you, you should try to, to think about based on what your current job is and what your current skill set is, 
what are you most able to do and and trying to identify that uh, because if you uh, try to do something completely different you probably don't have the expertise or the knowledge and so you'll end up doing it quite poorly uh, so in that case, it's better to use your influence, maybe to bring somebody in that does have the expertise and all those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I think that you kind of just have to be strategic about it. You have to sort of map out, you know, how does this organization work? What can you influence? What can't you influence? If you want to influence something you can't now, is there a way that you can get, uh, you know, in that organization to doing that? Or can you start a committee or can you... Uh, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's all kind of got to be specific to your, your circumstances, uh, I think, to figure it out. Of course. Good, good advice there. So in terms of sustainability, could you just paint us a little bit of a picture? Because I know in Singapore, we're moving towards a more green lifestyle, um, recycle bins here and there, separating your plastics here and there. But could you paint us a picture of where things are in locally, I would say, since we're, we're based in Singapore? And is there any hope for optimism? <laughs> yeah, so it's a very difficult question to answer because, uh, I mean, it's uh, sustainability affects so many different aspects of everything from a country's perspective. And uh, so I'm not privy to, to everything. But the only thing that, that we're really good at here is planning ahead and, and having a strong government that, that uh, is around to be able to carry out those plans. Uh, and so there's definitely been the continuity, which, you know, it's for you know there, there's you know always pros and cons to every country but a, a, one of the big pros of singapore is that they have climate plans that uh, stretch decades into the future and they're meeting targets and goals and all these kinds of things so it's really really good um i think probably the the most difficult thing will be ultimately is is how do they decarbonize their energy and that's it's you know it's just, it's too small of an island to to do enough solar. There's not enough wind to do enough winds, um, and you know they they were very seriously exploring nuclear, which I think Singapore is actually a very good candidate for nuclear because it is a carbon neutral, even though there's an impact from um, the mining. Uh, ultimately, you know if if your choice is fossil fuels or um, nuclear at this point, evil. it's a lesser evil. And, you know, it, it, but unfortunately it all kind of fell through a couple of years back, um, what they were so, sort of hoping to be able to do. So, yeah, I mean, that in, in terms of carbon, you know, it's, uh, we don't know what's gonna, what's gonna happen. I don't, I don't think, uh, eventually, um, Singapore will be in a position to do that anytime soon. Um, you know, or maybe our greatest hope is maybe nuclear fusion uh, technology, but that's still going to be quite a while away. So, yeah, on the waste side, Singapore also problem is that it's a very small market. Uh, and so like it, it doesn't do its own recycling here, per se, like it's always uh, like in terms of actually turning the materials into into materials again. Uh, it's all about exporting, you know, the recyclables. And right now there's uh, low oil prices globally. So when we talk about plastics, there's just no demand for plastics recycling right now. Like just the companies just prefer the virgin oil products because uh, they're cheaper and easier to get. And so you'll you'll find now that even if we sort our plastics, uh, they they don't end up getting recycled by, by the most part. They they usually end up getting dumped. Speaking yeah. of plastics, is this is this insane? Plastic how much bag. is yeah. how how yeah. much of that is used over here? I mean, we order we tr do our best. We order like a local organic box. Yeah. Um, I won't say the company, but they <laughs> they my goodness, when we open the box, 
every single item is wrapped in plastic and even when i shop at my fruit shop every like grapes are in the plastic boxes yeah. within the plastic bag <laughs> like come on guys like but a place like hong kong has completely eradicated plastic bags yeah uh, you go to australia like well in melbourne there was no plastic bags at the grocery store but here no 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 yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because generally the Singapore government, um, in, in some cases, when they choose to act, they, they act decisively and, you know, this is what's going to happen and they carry it through. Um, but in the case of the environment, they're taking a, a much more ground up approach and they're waiting for popular support before yes. they take a lot mm-hmm. of action on the environment. And, you know, unfortunately, that's going to really delay it um, past. I mean, we're already at the, at the points where uh, there's there's so much plastic pollution that we, we really need to be taking out, you know, or taking all measures to to really prevent more from being made. But uh, that's not how it's working. Um, but like, for example, recently when they're looking at um, some of the um, drinks, I think, uh, you know, they've been able to, you know, just remove certain types of sugary drinks from all the public schools just like that, you know, because they want to to help fight some of the, the diabetes epidemics that's mm-hmm. happening here. And they just do it like that or, you know, um, the smoking uh, bans on Orchard Road and stuff like that. Uh, so it's possible. But yeah, in the in the context of the environment uh, they're not taking that kind of approach uh, right yeah. now and yeah food wise um it's uh it's really i mean they want to grow more of the food locally so i think that we are one of the few countries in the world that is really focused on but becoming more resilient um, in terms of our own food uh, production and food security as a result and they are investing a lot of money now in plant-based and cell-based agriculture because they do realize that uh, you know, they're never going to be growing animals on this on this island if they want to be able to support the population. Uh, but they can, you know, grow those kinds of, uh, you know, meats in, in bioreactors mm-hmm. here because you know, we have a highly technically trained, you know, population, highly educated population in Singapore. It actually makes it a desirable place uh, in Asia for a lot of these companies that, uh, you know, really require these sterile conditions and really highly mechanized and measured uh you know, processes and factories, you know, it's, it's a really good place and even to do research, of course. So, you know, they're investing in that and we don't have an animal lobby here, you know, cause there's very few farms mm. uh, here. So we don't have to compete with that. Like, mm. uh, you know, many of the other Western industrialized countries with large animal agriculture industries. I mean, a lot just doesn't happen because of the lobbies here. We don't have that, uh, that problem. So, yeah, there's, you know, I think a lot's happening, um, but yeah, it's definitely difficult because it's a high population density, small island. Mm-hmm. And so there's just some places that will always be reliant on on, on the outside uh, to a considerable extent. And I think Singapore will be, you know, one of those. And it's going to be, um, you know, coming down to a lot of, I, I guess, international relations, um, you know, how, how all that pans out, especially in an era of climate change and, and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, and I found it really fascinating because I saw you at the DFSS um, Disruption in Food Sustainable, Sustainability Summit. Yes. Um, it's a mouthful, DFSS. <laughs> and it's uh, it was just incredible to see where this, this space that's just emerging because there's so many startups that uh, actually want to interview uh, one of the guys, Dan, he's starting up 
um, a jackfruit company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Daniel. Yeah, Eat Karana. And I know Shok Meats were, they were launched and they sell based seafood. Yeah. Um, I, I think there were, so it was a prototype that day. It was, was it, or was it, is, has it been launched yet? No, no, it's not launched yet. Just, uh, that was the first global, you know, time it, there's been a public eating of, of that. Yeah. It's fascinating. We both know Jerome. Jerome used to be the F&B director for Hyatt. He was doing great, great, amazing work at Hyatt. And, and so many of the plant-based meat alternatives were launched there with the Beyond Meat, uh, with just egg, which was pretty incredible, and and I know the government has some investment in these plant-based meat alternatives, isn't there? Yeah, Temasek uh, and Impossible is is the one that I know about uh, that's been popular, uh, popularly known. But I don't know if there's any other um, that that hasn't been sort of published. Yeah, I think I think that's incredible because, like you said, because there aren't a lot of meat lobbies here. In US, you wouldn't really see that happening. The government investing in well, maybe, maybe, maybe now these days, but but it's just quite quite a welcoming sight to know that the government's actually investing in alternative meat sources, meaning that you know that's that's a market that um that is potentially growing that needs to grow. But at the same time, I think there's so much more work to do, and I think it takes people like you on a grassroots level. It really starts with education and awareness. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, and, you know, we're doing our best. Uh, and and the, the more we can do, the, the faster the adoption will be. Um, because a lot of the hesitance for this uh, beyond price is just, you know, consumer acceptance as well. And uh, But luckily, we've seen that actually there's been a, quite a considerable amount of consumer acceptance, especially in the plant-based meat side, um, with, you know, like Beyond Meats uh, launching in some of the, the biggest uh, fast food chains in, in North America yeah. and uh, having, you know, their, their food, you know, outsell their expectations. And, and that's also happened here in Singapore with Grand Hyatt's, uh, you know, having Beyond Meat outsell beef, um, you know, in their restaurants uh, to having, you know, Impossible, you know, and, and Privé and their Impossible dishes selling out, you know, people showing up and not being able to eat because it's, you know, they way outpaced what they thought people would, would want. So it's, it's a great indication that, that people are craving more responsible options and, they are, you know, waiting for us to to provide those uh, as as I guess uh, advocates. I think for me, it's also interesting to see. Uh, well, hopefully, how sustainable is this change and this so-called new demand? Because you know, as with Singapore and this whole context, when there's something new, must try. You have to give it a go. Everybody's <laughs> yeah, fear of missing out. You know, people that beat each other up for Hello Kitty doll that's yeah, released yeah. at McDonald's because it comes out once a week. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But that's a different conversation altogether. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, but yeah. In terms of that, is it'll be interesting to see you know months or even years down the track to see whether this demand slowly grows or it could just be a oh well i just want to try this beyond me because there's a bit of hype on the newspaper i just want to so yeah hopefully yeah, yeah i think that's a very good question and i i don't think anybody like everybody of course when they're a corporate they they release data when things are good and but of course we don't have access like how how is uh the beyond meat selling at grand hyatt now 
uh, or at a in, in Canada now. Uh, it would be interesting to know. And of course, um, I mean, it's still on the menu, so it must have a, a reasonable amount of success. But is it still outselling or, or was that a blip, you know? And On my part, it's just to hope that, you know, alternatives like that are probably a little bit more accessible because things like Beyond Meat is still quite a premium product and you can only get it from premium supermarkets. And although on the flip side, alternate meat, fake meats have been around um, for a while, especially... Very long here. Like so, every, every time I tell people that I'm, oh, I'm vegan, or I sometimes I t- say vegetarian because I just don't want questions. <laughs> and uh, they are like, oh yeah, you know, like all they think is the muck meat, you know, like the, the gluten, gluten the gluten meat, yeah. uh, the seitan. So it's been around for very long. The Buddhists here have been using that. So I mean, people are used to to like a you know a replacement and everything. So I think they probably may even more open to meat alternatives than uh, in the Western world, so... Yeah, I mean, it definitely has a culture here, but it also has a stigma of mm-hmm. uh, that, that, you know, meat eaters say it or have a conception that it tastes terrible. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you do compare an Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat to the traditional mock meats in Asia, I mean, they, they don't compare in terms of taste. It, it's really that... Um, you know, you can tell if you're eating one of those traditional mock meats, it, it doesn't really yes. do a good job. Um, it's more for those people that, you know, and it, and it probably has a very religious base, uh, you know, uh, that people for religious purposes, they, they want to have something that kind of resembles and, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, so there it is. But um, we're, we're probably coming from people uh, now that do it more for, um, you know, health or environmental, you know, purposes. And the, you know, some of them for animals as well, uh, even if they continue to eat animals, you know, they, they, they would like to reduce some harm to animals. Um, but they, they really expect, you know, a good quality product yeah. as well. You know, they don't want to be disappointed. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that part of our, our, our role uh, in this movement is to create, you know, those, those very, very convincing alternatives. Yes. Have you had the impossible? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm even, I'm, I'm actually allergic to all of these new things Uh because they use coconut oil and I am one of the few people in the world allergic to coconut oil. Um, and so all, all I do is I pop an antihistamine and then I give it a go. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very odd actually, because you can remember yourself eating that back then and it brings back those memories and all those kinds of things and it's almost too real then and you like you're a bit confused in your mind and it's like because you don't view it as food anymore and it uh and and so it's, it, you have a little bit of difficulty dissociating it from you know you, you have to tell yourself it's not an animal yeah. <laughs> and uh and but but when i eat it too i'm just like i don't know why i ever missed this either like yeah. for me i like I it's not that i i need to go out and have this all the time or that i you know go out and buy it it's just like uh no i i feel that the food that i've now learned to cook and appreciate is much more fulfilling yeah. uh and so I, I i don't go back and uh and buy a bunch of it and and, and now add, I, I don't buy that stuff for home still it's it's for me you know, whole foods plant-based is is yeah. what i really find and cra- find delicious and crave yeah, crave, yeah. yeah. Was, it's the same <laughs> so, i was eating the bolognese yeah because uh, i remember like for French Canadians, spag bowl is like spaghetti bolognese <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. is like the thing. Uh, my mom would make a massive sauce, I remember, and we like freeze parts of it. And like when she'd be like, "Tonight we're eating spaghetti," I'd be like, "Yay!" <laughs> and it was, and and for me, I was just like, "All right, it was gonna remind me my childhood, whatever." I was excited, and first thing I thought, I would 
I was like, I would prefer lentils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. First thing, and our daughter is, she she's raised a vegan. She's yeah. never had a piece of meat. She hated it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just uh, I think it was the texture. <laughs> yeah, so we were just we had that bowl of bolognese with the Beyond meat, and she just had she was like, "Oh, pasta, pasta!" And she, when the pasta came, she ate a few spoonfuls. She hated the the mince. Yeah, she's not not happy. <laughs> I think she just had uh, fries from your. That's yeah, we 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 had we were bad parents that day because <laughs> yeah, yeah. she didn't want the the Beyond meat, and all she ate was a big bowl of. Fries. Patat. 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 French for French fries. Tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. Potatoes. Yeah. Potatoes. Yeah. So so yeah, I think for me, being a meat eater, it really brought back memories of yeah. my um kilo a day meat eating <laughs> days. Um, but yeah, you know, for me, um, I've always been into that kind of flavor. I think problem is that you know I I do like hyper palatable foods from <laughs> from time to time. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree with you. At the end of the day, I know how these foods make me feel after. Because it always tastes pretty good going down, but it doesn't feel the same when you actually have a bowl yeah. of, you know, quinoa. Or, well, maybe not quinoa. All right, no, I, okay, everyone, quinoa. I I hate quinoa. Let's <laughs> just put it out there. Like whenever I plan, we plan on having quinoa for dinner. Like I have to like send him a message during the day so he kind of found Mentally an alternative. He's like. Oh, I was like, uh, I'm just giving you the heads up. And then he's like, oh, quinoa is coming for dinner. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to be out with my friends. <laughs> so, yeah, so quinoa. So whenever there's uh, quin quinoa curry, uh, but I just end up buying my own um, bread. bread. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, 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 uh, that's, that's my little thing. So I definitely want to shift, a, a shift gears as well, uh, a little bit away from... Um, Plant-based meats. I mean, I'm thinking about it now. Hmm, yeah. Where should we? Who? Where, where? Where should we go and eat today? Um, Prive would be a great choice, but definitely want to go into your personal story, um, particularly because I, I remember seeing a, a great photo of you. Um, I think it was Elwin at Pink Dot Festival, mm -hmm. and and yeah, what's your take on having a festival like that, Pink Dot Festival in Asia? I think that you know it's 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 wonderful to have that event because I think you know especially you know in the Singapore context of free speech you know it's there's there's many sorts of, you know the, the where, where the festival is held you know it's it's kind of a marked area in people's minds you know and there just, just probably yeah. just backtracking a little bit what is pink dot yeah so so pink dot is uh, LGBTQ sort of um, kind of pride you know equivalents uh, in Singapore and in, in Singapore you can't have a parade you can't march you can't um, you can't do any kinds of um, you know assemblies okay. uh, protests uh, at all except in this this one park which is called Honglin Park uh, which has speakers corner on it and so as a result you know a lot of issues uh, the, the people just don't go there because it's just kind of it's not in, in the culture here it's just not an activist culture, you know, it's, it's just not there. People don't show up to do those kinds of things. Um, so, so not much happens, you know, generally at, at Honglin Park, but Pink Dot has managed to create what would normally be viewed as like, you know, a negative pro protest, you know, like that's kind of what that space was designed for, but they turned it instead into a positive event, you know, and then they managed to get, you know, you know, I think uh, thousands of people, you know, to show up. 
um, whereas you know quite often people just avoid that area. And even after you know the, that people have to show IDs to go inside, people still showing up. You know all those kinds of things. So I think they, they've done a really incredible job uh, of trying to promote a positive view of LGBTQ people and and the movement uh, and and show that it's a positive thing to support uh, rather than going out there and shouting in a negative way or you know those kinds of things so just a little bit of backstory for those people that aren't in listeners who aren't in singapore you need to show your id because um only Singaporeans can attend Ping Dot, and, is PRs. That, yeah. and yeah. PRs can attend. So yeah. if you're an international, you have you, you're not from Singapore, you're PR. You can you just hang around there, or you're ushered out. Well, you you can't get inside. I mean, you can the, around is just around is yeah because I, now they fence it off. I mean, three years ago they didn't fence it off, so. Um, people would go in uh, and uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, people went in that shouldn't um, and, and sometimes they would be taken out. Um, but now you just can't get in. Uh, I mean, of course, the, the sidewalks outside the park, outside the barrier, you can walk uh, around there if you if you really wanted to. Yeah. So in terms of your backstory, what was it like growing up being gay? Did you have experienced any challenges? Were your parents quite open? Yeah, no. I mean, the thing about rural Alberta... Um, especially, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a conservative, you know, especially in rural areas, it's just, it's, it's conservative. And so, you know, it's, it's not that like I could be out, you know, it's like, it's a, it's the internal thing. It's just this private struggle, uh, that you grow up and you, you know, have these, you know, feelings that you're attracted to to the other other boys but you can't do you know anything about it or say anything about it because you know if you do um you you've kind of heard all of the gay jokes and homophobic comments from your friends and family and all those kinds of things as you're growing up and you just kind of you know have to hide it because you're just worried about you know how will people treat you you know if you actually tell them and so, yeah, it's, I really, you know, I, I was completely in the closet, you know, growing up through high school and everything. I never told anybody, um, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, just kind of, kind of tried to deal with it, uh, in, in that way. And so luckily I was, you know, strong enough that I just kind of dealt with it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's nicer now that, that I see, you know, being a teacher now, being able to see students far more accepting and uh, far and being able to come out, you know, and, and have, you know, their, because I mean, it, it kind of sucks when you look at it retrospectively is that you miss your teenage years when you're in the closet because you can't date, you can't do all those things that normal teenagers would do. And so, you know, it's nice for them to be able to to have that. But I mean, they still face a lot of uh, problems as well still uh, today, because uh, depending where you are in the world, there can still be a lot of negativity. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, definitely not easy, but it's getting easier for people in, uh, growing up in some places of the world. Yeah, definitely. I think for, for us, for me in Montreal, I could see a big difference. I remember uh, in high school, there was probably... I'm, so I'm born in the mid, like so I'm born in 1984. So I was in high school, late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And uh, I remember in our sex ed, they had uh, an openly gay man that came and talked to us. Oh, yeah. And then told us like, you know, like, that's fine, da, 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 da. And there was, I think there was probably a couple of people in my, in the whole 
in my whole level that were openly gay and that came out like probably like secondary three or four. So it started to be okay. Yeah. Um, but I could really see uh, like, and now what I hear from Canada, whatever, like, and, and especially from Quebec, like it's now it's completely fine and it's no more. I mean, obviously I don't know because I'm straight, so I yeah. cannot take that. But I I can see a major evolution from when I was younger. Yeah, yeah, I would say it's a complete difference yeah. as well. Um, because yeah, I mean now, and and I I really it's it's really a lot thanks to Hollywood. I would say like it's just. Oh, yeah. You know, people like Ellen, um, you know, being able to help people, you know, appreciate a gay person on television, like being in their homes every day and talk shows and stuff like that. I think that she helped change more conceptions uh, in people's minds than anybody else simply uh, for doing that. And so, yeah, I mean, since then, it's it's been a complete, you know, sort of change. Whereas, you know, definitely when I was in high school, you know, it, it probably, I mean, that's at a time still when like there were, there were stories, you know, in the U.S. of, you know, gay kids getting killed. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, th that's not that long ago. And you know what? But now the, those same people that, you know, I, I could, you know, be worried about those kind of same things happening to me. Um, now that's not like that is I wouldn't be afraid, um, you know, anymore um, to, to be out in Canada, even in the rural area. I mean, it's really changed um, so drastically. Um, and, and it's really inspiring to see how how quickly that can change yeah yeah I, I i agree with you i mean fortunately we're in places like canada and even singapore for that matter thinking about um australia we just came from our friend's um wedding a close friend of ours and i just think it was and we brought sienna along and i just think it's beautiful that she's growing up in a world where everyone um is accepted and I think it's absolutely brilliant. However, I, I do watch documentaries, Vice documentaries on places like Russia and um, um, Africa. Africa. Yeah. It's just, it's so scary. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even though it's, it's a lot better, it's mm -hmm. still not, uh, there's still so many problems uh, that people face. I mean, parents, you know, still, you know, kind of expect, you know, the, the children to be straight, you know, in a way, you know, and it's, and there's still this, you know, coming out that has to happen, you know, because there's always this, still this kind of presumption um, uh, for people. And so that still does, does create some pressure and, um, you know, in, in terms of Canada and Singapore is very different as well. I mean, the, the local education system doesn't uh, allow um, for, for much in the way of, of education in terms of homosexuality. And uh, in terms of the, the media here as well, there, there can't be any positive portrayals of, of homosexuality or else it's, um, you know, censored. Uh, and then if there is uh, homosexual content that does yeah, have positive yeah. portrayals and it's rated R21. So like Modern Family or Star Trek Discovery, you know, things that are related, rated like PG are rated R21 in Singapore simply because they have, you know, positive homosexual. Yeah, it's um, funny because we models, yeah. we did actually go to a play. What play La was Cage. it? Lacage. 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 Bird, Bird, yeah. Bird Cage. And there was signs all over the place. Warning, homosexual content. <laughs> I was just like, oh my goodness. That's exactly why we're here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's why we're here. Come on, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't tell, don't tell the plot. Don't, don't, don't spoil the plot. Then, then I'm so happy because I'm, I mean, like my favorite show. Like I have watched every season twice, and he's just, a, he's getting a bit aggravated by RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, all my favorite drags are coming here. So oh, yeah, know, Alaska's coming, yeah. coming, and there's like the, the, the show, the whole show's coming, and then, but apparently 
it was a debate in uh, in Parliament, or I don't know how they call it here, but it was a debate in Parliament. Oh, I, I saw it on the on the re- uh, the Pink Dot um, Facebook um, uh, page, and mm. they were like they were showing like that that some MP was like questioning. Uh, the like how dangerous it can be for for youth that uh, RuPaul's Drag Race people are coming here and the best comments I saw like they were like they were like they're like shouting them um like one-liners from, yeah, from yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it's it, it's it's hard to say like with, with all these kinds of things um, because ultimately Singapore and, and the reason why it's so safe now is because there's a lot of religious harmony and part of that religious harmony has come from, you know, very strict laws on, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, these these religions, uh, you know, are not disrespected in certain ways. And but then, you know, then it comes to now where those kinds of things then impede on the rights potentially of others. So then so there's, you know, that's where this conversation that Pink Dot creates comes up, which is, you know, um, how far do you take, you know, respecting, you know, the the religious beliefs versus the human rights and all those kinds of things? And yeah, Singapore is trying to to find a a way that that maintains this the social harmony here. And I think that for a lot of people who've never, you know, lived here, you know, it, it's really a safe country. And you know, anytime you have you know something like that, there's always, you know, some trade offs that, that come with that. And um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting to see this evolution happening, and I, I don't know how long it'll take, um, but you know, definitely there's, you know, uh, people here that you know they that are LGBTQ, um, and you know you're 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 safe living here. You're, you're not you know you're not going to be beaten on the streets or you're not going to be thrown in in jail really or anything like that. But at the same time, you you lack you know some some of the the freedom of expression or or some of the legal you mm-hmm. know you know marriage and all those kinds of things. So so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how everybody figures it out here. Um, yeah. Connecting the two dots together, so veganism and then this LGBT rights. So veganism is about animal rights and LGBT rights. So should vegans be more open to LGBT rights, or in your experience, do you find that vegans in general are there are more vegans who are LGBT um, uh, supporters, allies? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I think that uh, especially looking at, you know, our, our community and animal allies, uh, it's always been a very welcoming community for LGBTQ people. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's all about, I mean, especially if, if somebody is vegan, you know, you know the, the first sort of focus is animals. But I mean, the underlying, you know, sort of, I guess, concept behind veganism is compassion yes. and to not selectively apply your compassion. So, you know, you, you may start by not selectively applying your, your compassion to animals, but, you know, as soon as you're challenged on, on the other things that you might be blind to, which is, you know, LGBTQ rights or uh, women's rights or whatever it may be, uh, you know, then you, 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 I think you're in the place to start questioning yourself even more. And I think those people start realizing, like, no, they, you know, these, are, these people deserve our compassion. And so I think, and, and I think as well, you know, if, if 
um, if we're in the in the vegan movement, we we do have you know the responsibility to to make sure that we're also you know expanding rights to humans as well. I feel that animals, uh, humans are animals. Uh, so I mean, we also have to care about other people. It's, it's uh, yeah. I agree as well. For me, for me, it's all about spreading a positive message. But you know, I just always see when people start judging, particularly militant vegans, start judging other people, mm. actually forgetting that they weren't. They, at one point of their lives, they weren't vegan yeah, before. Yeah. And and I think that it's, you know, that's not going to win anyone over. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely hard. I mean, because I mean, when you when you look at their justifications, I mean, there are there are other movements, of course, where they they took the militant approach. And, and that's why, you know, there's there's certain racial rights uh, and equality in the world and stuff like that. It didn't all happen without uh, or in a nice way. Yes. But I, I think that we also have to remember that the animal rights movement is, is probably fundamentally very different because we're um, speaking on behalf of something uh, of, of animals uh, uh, that can't speak for themselves, they can't represent themselves, uh, and so it's a fundamentally different, um, yeah, thing. <laughs> so it, it's hard to uh, to always try to transfer what other campaigns or other rights movements have done and say that it directly applies to what uh, we're trying to do in the animal rights side of things. Um, yeah, I feel I feel the same. I. I, you know, I, I understand what Luke is saying about, you know, like people who don't have compassion for meat eaters, whatever, but I do understand the, the, ang the, the anger yeah. and I do support as well, even though sometimes I don't agree, but I do support things like Peter, uh, with the, you know, sometimes it's very shocking what they yeah. do. Uh, we need that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah, I think yeah, more recently what you saw in Australia with mm. the Dominion, yes. Um, yes. you know, um, it's, it's creating that conversation mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it's, it's a conversation that needs to happen. Uh, and you know, if most people aren't going to have it unless you, you, you get in their face in some way, but you know, it's, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see, I mean, it, the amount of media attention they've gotten since then, um, you know, that, that conversation wouldn't have been started without yes. being a little bit, um, yeah. out there like that. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I think that there's a spectrum of activism and everything yeah, has its place. Definitely. And I think people, um, you know, have to focus less on what they don't agree on and focus more on what they do agree on. And, uh, we don't need to necessarily fight each other. Just do the best you can with what you feel works best. And, you know, don't, don't try to, to harm other people, um, in the process. Yeah, I agree with that as all. Well. You know, I look at it as the animal activists and I do understand as well because when you're in, in the front lines and you see actually what happens, you get so lost and so it's and it's just so harrowing when mm. you're when you're out there and it's hard to hide those Im intense emotions as well. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day it's about all of us working together in our own way to move this whole movement ahead. And for yeah. some people, it's not even activism. It, their activism is just like, you know, being healthy, uh, raising healthy children yeah. that are plant-based and everything, just being a good, uh, positive uh, example to others without going outside and picketing. But I feel like, I think everyone has their... Because a lot of time I see on some vegan groups, uh, like people are like, hey, if you are vegan, you should be an activist. And, uh, you know, like, so then that's, that's one of the... 
Hmm. The, the the few things that start like big uh, arguments amongst vegans and yeah I I totally agree with it we should just stop fighting against each other even though it's kind of hard <laughs> it's one big thing in the vegan community there's a lot of uh, clans and internal <laughs> conflicts and yeah. even even just whether you're raw or you're not what's what's justified as a clean whole food plant based diet I think this this the, this one has kind of like gone the back burner like yeah. the the different the 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 okay. different no but I no i've noticed that yeah. it used to be true like a few years ago um but yeah like um the, the, now it's more like if you're an activist or if you know if you're not like dominion thing has actually divided a lot of people yeah, there's yeah. actually a lot of vegans were like no it's not good we're yeah. ju- they're just talking about us negatively blah 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 um but yeah it's it's it is always always uh, of course yes i heard the theory is that like human beings are like well like we're like you know we're we, we're animals so we'll hold we're used to being small like groups mm. so if if a group is bigger than a certain it number fragments. we need <laughs> we need to do something to i think be it's a hundred or something like that if a group is more than a hundred and then yeah that's when uh, you need to we need to find a way to to fight with each other because like this is too many in this group and that's probably why i mean from what i know the 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 vegan community in Singapore is like so welcoming. It's it it we're, we're tiny <laughs> until we hit that one hundred and one. Then it's gonna be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think we we kind of uh, like when we started Animal Allies, we created the essential agreements together, and and part of that was saying that you know if you join this group, it's you focus on what we agree on, not what we disagree on, mm-hmm. and by just creating those, like so, we kind of created a filter because there are definitely the type of people that. Uh, um, you know, they, they, they like to do a different type of activism they, or they like to be on the more judgmental side, less pragmatic side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's fine. But, you know, if you try to mix those together, then it's just a recipe for disaster uh, because then you just argue over the same thing infinitely and nothing gets done. So, you know, we decided what kind of organization we wanted and what types of people would fit that. So we create that filter so that we can, um, you know, build it without having it to fracture later on. Uh, so it was building it from the beginning, knowing what we were from the beginning was important. Yeah. And then I think the, you know, we're the only ones that have really, uh, I think, coalesced into, into something. Um, the other, the other types haven't really organized uh, in Singapore. And, and the, I mean, the other type of activism isn't really effective in Singapore anyway, just because of the, the, the situation with, with free speech laws and stuff here. Yeah. So that's why the other ones probably won't even materialize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to kind of do our own brand that, that works in the Singapore context within the laws and all that kind of stuff. So that's more positive, more pragmatic. For sure. So I guess just to wrap up, I'd love to leave you, um, get your insight on two questions, like moving to a sustainable lifestyle, how can someone listening to this podcast all of a sudden is aware of, okay, I want to start moving to this direction. What are the first things that they can do? Yeah, so I think um, what, this was uh, what we developed recently, which is called Earth Life. And this is focusing on people and their individual choices and habits. And, and if we were to fast forward 100 years from now and we had solved the sustainability issues and, and things were good, it would be because by that time people have made these shifts. And, and so one of them obviously is plant-based. Uh, is that people will be, will be um, you know, that or it'll be purely cell-based agriculture. 
water, you know, so there won't be animal agriculture at that point um, in any meaningful way um, on the scale that, that there is now. Um, another thing would be zero waste, uh, you know, just uh, avoiding material packaging and uh, disposables entirely and, and governments are already phasing those out, but uh, choosing to, to live that kind of lifestyle. Um, and minimalism, which is actually choosing to realize that materialism doesn't bring you happiness, that happiness is not through buying things. And when you buy all those things, the, the uh, environmental impact of producing and getting all the materials and getting them to you and, uh, you know, getting rid of it after you're, you're done with it, it's, it's extremely taxing on the planet and it, it just doesn't correspond to, uh, to happiness. So uh, people focusing on their relationships with others, learning new things, helping others, those are all things that you can do to increase your happiness that require no material things and it's, it's much better for everybody, uh, including the environment. Um, you know, looking as well at biophilia, which is creating this love of nature. And that's, that's very difficult in an increasingly urbanized world where, you know, it's, you know, in the past decades, the, just the influx of everybody has been to moving to cities uh, and, and as a result, losing all, all connection with nature. And, you know, there's generations of kids being raised now that will never have had a garden or, you know, will never have been able to, you know, had those kinds of experiences potentially. And so when they, they lack that um, connection to nature, uh, it's very easy for, you know, government to allow natural resources to be sold off and degraded. If, if you don't have a connection to that forest, you never went to it, who cares if it gets cut down? But if that forest is, you go camping there and you've spent time there and you want to go there, that's what biophilia is. And in that lack of love of nature is why the world is, is allowing nature to be degraded. It's why we're in the sixth mass extinction. So it's encouraging people to prioritize um, nature in their life. Um, another thing, advocacy, which is that everybody needs to be an advocate now because the problems are really so, so um, staggering. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so everybody needs to be either using their time or their money to be funding change. Um, we, we can't have people on the fence. And if we have people staying on the fence like they are now, uh, then we just know what the outcome will be. So it's about, you know what, if you don't want to do something, then donate your money to the organizations that are doing something. If you do want to do something, get out there, get involved with that charity, you know, make, make that happen. But we really need people to be advocates. Um, another one is carbon positive. Uh, people really have to be aware that climate change is the, it's real. <laughs> the defining issue. If, if the climate uh, is allowed to warm to, to what easily right now we can see four degrees being, you know, not unrealistic by any, by any stretch based on what's happening now, uh, people need to really realize that that's, that's really civilization disrupting, that when you have, you know, at that point, 10 billion people and you have the inability to feed all of them, the... You know, the only there, there's so much uh, there's only so much uh, that that can happen before international relations break down as, you know, we compete for those those limited resources and you don't want to live through that. Um, and but but more than that, it, it's it's going to wipe out 95 percent of our coral reefs. 
uh, it's going to make most of our mammals uh, and land mammals extinct or, or on the endangered list, you know. So if you care about animals, you have to care about climate change. It's going to kill almost, you know, it's going to affect every wild animal species out there. And, and we're in the sixth mass extinction. So we have to know our carbon footprints. And so carbon positive is taking it beyond this idea of, you know, live a carbon neutral life. Um, we're beyond that. It's there's too much CO2 in the air. We have to start planting trees. We have to start sucking it out. And that's what carbon positive is, is removing it. So you have to figure out in your life, how do you take more carbon out of the air through donating, through planting yourself, whatever it may be. But we've got to start, you know, putting our, our, our money into getting it out of the air. Uh, if we if we want to have a good life for ourselves and we and we want the animals uh, as well to to be able to survive in a in a warmer climate yeah in terms of the carbon positive piece is there any resources is there any websites that you could potentially recommend for people to look up that want to start donating or yeah, supporting any, that cause any charities that are, you find that are worthy or yeah i mean uh, you you can go i think uh one thing that I, I find very easy to do is there's this search engine called Ecosia. And all, all it does is it takes the revenue from ads and uses it to plant trees instead of using it to just make money, you know? And so literally every day you can plant a tree just by using that search engine instead without you even having to do anything other than your time. Awesome. So, you know, that that's that's one thing that I just say, you know, that's do can that. That's a great one. E-C-O-S-I-A. And uh, but then other than that, uh, there are some some really cool um, carbon offsetting planting um, initiatives out there. So focusing on carbon positive really should be on um, planting trees. If you look at, for example, like UN carbon neutral credits, those ones are, you know, they build, for example, say a hydroelectric dam. And so that isn't so they, they can take that amount of energy that that dam generates and they could say, well, we generated that without, you know, burning coal. So we've prevented that amount of CO2 from going into the air. So that, that creates carbon neutral, but it doesn't really suck air out. It doesn't really uh, rehabilitate. So when we're getting into that rehabilitation, there's things like plant a billion, um, which is, you know, an organization trying to plant a billion trees. I think that's by conservation, uh, Nature Conservancy, I think, in the U.S. Um, there's another one called um, COTAP, uh, C-O-T-A-P. And uh, they're about uh, planting uh, and other projects as well, but that also have a social impact. So it's uh, trying to help create jobs in areas where people are impoverished so that you're not only sucking CO2 out, but you're helping the people there awesome. at the same time. So yeah, there's there's quite a few you know things out there uh, that you know if you just uh, search it quickly, um, you, you'll be able to find ways to plant trees, uh, and you know just set aside a, a budget of you know how how much do you want to uh, you know take out of the air every year and and try to make some something happen. Definitely, I'm gonna. I mean, Ecosia is a, a very very yeah. good one. And yeah, that's a first yeah. step in CoTap, and for me, I think that's something that I want to look into myself because uh, thanks, thanks to that. So just to just to kind of wrap things up and kind of land this ship, I'd love to ask: um, since this is called the Awake Asia Podcast, what does being awake mean to you? Uh, well, I think it would be being aware of yourself and your impacts on others, uh, and and. When you're aware of that, you're you're able to make more informed decisions uh, that that are more in line with, I guess, your morality. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time, Michael. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. I love the work that Michael does here. And of course, the local community group and all our Animal Ally friends. All the resources he shared are listed in the show notes. And if you would also like to connect with Michael, visit awakemethod.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to connect with me or share any aha moments, I'm on socials as Awake Method. That's it from me today. Until next episode, live once, eat plants. Ciao.